welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and from BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Today on the show, is there still a market for luxury properties in Greater Vancouver? I'll be speaking to Jason Turcott about that, as well as what he's seen change at the municipal council level. Plus, disrupting the insurance industry, how one company's doing it and why. BIV has a number of events coming up. The first is on April 25th. As we know, the conventional banking business has undergone rapid technological change in the last decade. So on April 25th, BIV's Business Excellence Series will host a panel discussion on the next big things in banking and finance. The discussion will explore the future of banking and finance, policy challenges, the impacts on incumbents, as well as the opportunities for startups. For tickets and information, you can visit BIV.com slash BES banking finance. You've taken the hard decision to sell the firm, although now the hard work is only just beginning. What can you do to ensure you aren't making mistakes as you sell? You can find out when we host an expert panel on finding the best price and buyer for your business. That takes place May 8th at the Vancouver Club. For tickets and information, visit BIV.com slash events. And the second wave of cannabis legalization is coming. So on May 22nd, on our Cannabis 2.0 panel, we'll examine and size up the opportunities in this expanded market. And that includes looking at edibles, infused beverages, topicals, and vapes. Again, for more information, you can visit BIV.com slash events. Here's our show. Joining me now for our bi-weekly segment is Jason Turcott, Vice President of Development at Cressy Development Group. Jason, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me again. So we're talking a bit about the luxury market, the luxury housing market here in Greater Vancouver. What's the market like for that segment of the industry? Well, um, it's it's certainly changed. Uh, we, we've seen probably um, it was the first first part of the marketplace to experience the slowdown, and um, um, you know I think it's sort of redefined what luxury means. Uh, a little bit because I think that term became uh, fairly ubiquitous in, in our in our, our industry, and uh, uh, so I think it sort of uh, put it back into perspective on what what real luxury actually is. Because I think where where you have uh, something that is truly unique, there there remains a, a keen interest from um, certain segments of the buyers. You ask a good question. What is luxury? How would you define it at this point in time? Well, you know, what I like to think about when you talk about luxury, at least in my mind, is, is something truly unique. Um, there's there's some element to the location or the project or, you know, really both that, that just set it apart, right? You know, it's it's something that um, to a degree is, is irreplaceable. And I think that's really what, what luxury means. And then, you know, it's, it's, it starts first with the location and then, uh, you know, the product sort of unfolds around that. When you talk of places that are really unique, some place, for example, that has a secured view or maybe is in another desirable location, there's always going to be some kind of value associated with that. But I'm curious how buyers have maybe changed their attitudes toward buying. Are they buying as quickly as they have? Are they taking more time to make decisions for luxury properties? What are you seeing? Yeah, so we've, you know, we've got two good examples in our in our portfolio right now, um, you know, one, you know, that I would put sort of at the very top of this luxury conversation is our, is our Bellevue 
uh, project in West Vancouver, and we've seen some recent deal activity there in spite of, you know, it being a fairly slow marketplace. And I attribute that purely to to just the it's it, the irreplaceable nature of that project. It's basically uh, uh, just off under a village, real close to the seawall, a high-rise building that is just you know, it's, you know an exceptional level of quality. And so, uh, you know, that that to me speaks to somebody looking at the opportunity as as being uh, irreplaceable. Like they can't just wait and buy in the next project uh, that that, ha- that has that same kind of offering. It just doesn't exist. And likewise. Um, uh, to a slightly different degree, but uh, same kind of concept with our our Canby project, Chelsea. Um, there's been a you know a multitude of as you know projects up and down the Canby corridor, but there's a few that I think have some really neat attributes. And and that project in particular sits kind of at the crest of the hill, has some incredible views of the city, and and is immediately uh, adjacent to Queen Elizabeth Park, and uh, so in a fabulous location. And and you know we sort of paired it with. Uh, with the product type that, you know, um, helped us do very, very well. And uh, in spite of, you know, back in the summer when we brought the project forward, we were already experiencing a bit of a slowdown in the marketplace, but the, the absorptions there were, were very strong. And I think it just speaks to, you know, a true um, uh, sort of luxury proposition versus just putting that label on an expensive product. Has who's buying these kinds of properties changed at all? Or is it the same group of people? They maybe are just taking a little more time or behaving a bit differently. Um, I think it's probably both. It has changed a little bit. We have seen um, slightly less international uh, interest, as as is to be expected with the introduction of the of the taxes. You know, however, we we do still see it. You know, there are there are international buyers that will will you know at, at this level that will make purchase decisions in spite of the taxation measures. Um, but primarily, it is it is you know. Uh, Canadian residents and and most times people who who live here already that have done very well and um, are making a change in lifestyle and that's uh, typically out of a single family home you know they they often uh, have a place down south uh, Palm Springs or somewhere in California uh, spend part of the year abroad and and uh, this will be their home base but they're looking to have the the lifestyle change of uh, lock and leave and and move into the condo. Mm-hmm. I'm curious whether things like higher property taxes, a, a higher school tax on certain valued properties, as well as slightly higher interest rates, are getting factored in and maybe having an impact on the luxury side. Yeah, they 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 do. Um, there's no question about that. I, I think the greater the, the the bigger challenge for them is is that they're selling a home often, and I think uh, mm. that's the biggest obstacle. You know, often these these folks buying at the higher end. Uh, are not as as interest rate sensitive because they tend to not be as leveraged or in some cases not leveraged at all when they're buying um, because they're they're selling an asset that you know often is is valued more may not have any debt on it itself so the uncertainty around what that that single family asset might be worth I, I think uh, is their biggest obstacle not so much the other measures this concept of luxury developments and who might be buying them was certainly a factor that was often discussed in the lead up to our municipal elections. And I think we've seen many councils elected either on the platform of bringing about more housing supply and affordability, or perhaps even going so far as to stop change altogether. What are you seeing when it comes to trying to get luxury or higher end developments approved? Are councils still willing to give them the green light? Yeah, um, 
it, there has been uh, some that have, I think, uh, maintained a status quo from previous councils, uh, and, and those municipalities tend to have had uh, fewer changes in council. Um, but I would say as a general trend, there has been um, a, a fairly substantial change towards an anti-development sentiment uh, amongst all the local governments. And I can I can speak to a few of those specific examples, um, you know, that, that jump out to me. Um, Surrey, although I don't know I would categorize Surrey as anti-development. Certainly there was a platform run on the, by the mayor there to focus development uh, to sort of rein it in, if you will, um, and he ran on some very uh, distinct platform items, one being um, uh, scrapping the uh, light rail transit and going towards a, a SkyTrain line, uh, the municipal police force concept, and then the other is focusing development on on what they call their urban corridors and on, on the transit corridors. But of course, the city of Surrey produces Virtually, or, or, or the vast majority of, of all townhouse and, and single-family new townhouse and single-family product types, because we simply don't have that land west of the, of Surrey and north of the Fraser to do so in in, in large large uh, quantities, and and that those those area plans out in Surrey where a lot of that product was contemplated, one of which we we're um, quite involved with, have been. Seemingly put on the back burner as a result of that change in council, and that's obviously of concern to us. You know, other other municipalities like the District of North Vancouver seems to have virtually put uh, market housing on a complete freeze. And then, of course, even here in Vancouver, um, you know, we're having discussions recently around uh, motions in council to uh, do away with programs like Rental 100, which we've taken part of uh, in multiple applications, and certainly helped us to uh, to bring forward new rental housing. Um, to the marketplace, and those are all, you know, different examples that I give of a, an underlying trend here that's certainly concerning for us as an industry, and I think should be concerning for people because it, it could result in a lack of new housing, not today, but in two, three, four years' time, because uh, these, these these projects take several years to get through the process, and it'll be down the road that we'll feel the effects of it. A couple of things I want to follow up on. One in Surrey, when you mentioned several projects potentially being put on the back burner. Walk me through a little bit more of the specifics of that. Is it the company deciding to maybe shelve a project because it's taking too long? Is it the city maybe taking more time when it comes to going through an approvals process? What does that look like? What does it involve? Well, yeah, the city of Surrey has, you know, it's obviously geographically very large. And and part of that election platform um, that the mayor ran on was was that they were going to rein it in. And I put air quotes around that. I, I believe that those were terms that he may have used. Meaning, we want to reassess the rate of change in some of the outlying areas, uh, the areas that we would call less less urban or transit focused. Uh, I think um, part of the uh, what what that mayor and council heard um, was you know people was concerned around uh, sprawling and and the implications of tra- on traffic and and transportation, and so what they've done is decided to focus their their housing. Uh, priorities on uh, the city city center and areas currently served by rapid transit and or uh, major bus routes, um, and so areas like um, uh, Grandview Heights, for example, where we've done uh, a few projects and are currently working on one, which is out towards the South Surrey area, um, have have taken a back seat and they uh, they have not been directing staff to actively work with developers in those areas. And, uh, and and as a result, we haven't been able to progress uh, our applications 
through and it's delaying the process, which means, you know, down the road, uh, you know, if we forecast out the numbers of people that move to those communities, we're not going to be able to meet the housing demand. And, and that's our concern. Uh, obviously, on the, on the immediate front, it's a financial concern because we've made an investment that we're not able to pursue at the moment. But down the road, it may mean that you've got a, very, uh, a large lack of supply, uh, unable to meet um, the demand of people looking to move to that area. This will obviously depend on a, a case-by-case basis, but given the forecasted demand and the number of people moving, not just there, but really into our region, is it worth it to kind of wait out any uncertainty at the council level, keep the land and, and hope that maybe it gets the green light down the road? Or is there kind of a burn rate and once you pass a certain point, it's just no longer viable to pursue any kind of project? Well, once you once you make the decision to acquire land and move forward, you know, particularly in a market that that has uh, you know that has softened uh, from an absorption's perspective, um, you know, you're 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 invested in it. You really, you know, at that point, have not a lot of options but to see it through or divest of the property, um, and which is an option. But of course, we're in a marketplace right now where. Um, you may have paid more for land, and there's certainly a lot of people who have paid more for land than it would that it would be that it would transact at in this market. And so, consequently, uh, what we've seen on the land acquisition side across the industry is a stark slowdown. Like there is not a lot of developers buying sites right now, and it has been that way for a while. So, um, you know, the investment guys, all the brokerages are, are certainly seeing uh, you know the lowest levels of activity that they've seen in many many years. Would you characterize this as a, a period of uncertainty in a way? Yeah, I mean, there was a long stretch there of, of a quite an active marketplace, and I think uh, um, I, I always like to describe the analogy. Uh, you know, in essence, for, for, for years uh, in the Lower Mainland, we were able to develop without really disrupting existing residential neighborhoods. You know, new plans would come forward, uh, new neighborhood concepts would move forward into what were underutilized areas, you know, former industrial lands, greenfield sites, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's really been in these, in this last market cycle where the majority of new development and new area plans were actually in existing residential neighborhoods. You think about the West End community plan, you think about, you know, um, the Mount Pleasant plan. These are existing single-family neighborhoods, and you can take that those examples out to uh, neighboring municipalities as well, where you're seeing growth uh, in terms of uh, new housing and, and densification in existing single-family neighborhoods. And I think it was a rate of change that people just were, were not prepared for. And, um, and, and that's why we saw such a successful, uh, such success in those who campaigned for slowing the growth, slowing the rate of change, um, reigning in development. I think it, it really resonated with people, uh, both in just in terms of how much they've seen their neighborhoods change, but also traffic and transportation were a major issue for people in a lot of municipalities. And, um, you know, growth gets blamed for a lot of that, uh, some with good reason and, and, and some of it uh, a little misguided. But certainly those were the hot buttons that seemed to get uh, a lot of the new uh, elected officials onto council. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like in some ways we want it both ways. We want a slow development and slow change, but we also want more housing supply and more affordable housing specifically. Have we figured out yet how to sort of <laughs> figure this out? Well, yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, the 
the number one topic of conversation is is affordability. Uh, number two, right behind that, is well, my neighborhood's changing. So we we really do, and, and we've kind of touched on this before uh, when we talk. Is that uh, people need to understand that that the way that they saw their neighborhood, you know, they grew up in that it's it's done. You know, if we continue to think like that, we will we can't keep having a conversation about affordability. We need to decide what we want to be. Do we want to be uh, a, a true urban city that is going to always struggle with affordability, but at least try and keep up? Or are we going to try and protect our little oasis that was, and then at least at least acknowledge that it will never be affordable for anybody? But it can't be both. And uh, uh, you know, supply is unquestionably part of the equation to keeping up with affordability, and, and not continuing to have this be a, a reckless uh, problem. Um, and at the moment, we're not doing that. We are we are going to be undersupplying our market for sure because um, we see a slowdown, which which means we pull back on the reins, but also even longer term planning, nothing's getting approved right now in certain areas, and that will be a problem down the road. I wonder too about community amenity contributions. They've been quite controversial, but to your point about how maybe segments of the population wanting to preserve their community if that's not an option that's available anymore, it then becomes very important that they have a say in how their community evolves or the kinds of amenities that get brought along with added development. And I perhaps maybe that's some kind of a solution. If you can't keep it the same, you can at least have a say in how the community evolves. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, I think that, um, you know, it was starting to become a, a better told story. The, 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 the benefits that come from new development. I think that for a long time, um, you know, develop the you know, developers as they would go through the process and write these big checks for CACs or, or you know, others various contributions, whether it be public art or park contributions. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. But the public doesn't know that, and so they. Um, uh, I, I think that story was starting to be told better. I mean, you know, I think what's happening right now is we're seeing such a drastic pullback in the number of projects going through the system that a lot of these municipalities. Are going to have a major adjustment on their hands in terms of their revenues. Uh, you know, we talked about it uh, a little bit at the provincial level when we talk about um, you know, PTT revenues coming in. Uh, that's going to be way off. But you know, at the municipal level, revenues through community amenity contributions, revenues through development cost charges and levies, revenues through cash in lieu for you know X Y Z. These 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 numbers are all across the board going to be way off. And it'll be interesting to see the implications on municipal budgets in the, in the years ahead, which could ultimately have an impact on people's property taxes. Very interesting. That will get everyone's attention, I'm sure. Jason, mm-hmm. as always, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. That's Jason Turcott, Vice President of Development at Cressy Development Group. I mentioned at the top of the show that on April 25th, we're having a look at the next big things, the next big disruptors in banking and finance. From a consumer perspective, we've certainly seen more options, more convenience really in this space than ever before. My next guest is disrupting how individuals and businesses secure financing and insurance. Jay Dilley is the founder and CEO at Rate Broker. Thanks for coming on the show. Morning. Thank you very much for having me, Ellie. Tell me what it is you're disrupting. What's the traditional model and how are you changing things? Yeah, so the traditional model thinking on in terms of either a business or individuals is you have to go out and solicit from a bank or another financial institution 
uh, one of the products that you're interested in. So if it's a mortgage or if it's insurance, you have to go out to one of those and actually, you know, fill out an application, wait for them to give you an approval or not. In our particular model, what it is, is we're flipping it on its head and they're actually bidding on your business. Interesting. Would it be like a kayak.ca type layout where as an individual, you can go to a site and you can compare rates across multiple institutions. They're not necessarily bidding in the kayak scenario, but is it similar in that regard? It's it's very similar in in a couple of those aspects. One of the, the main differentiators for, for us is we don't actually sell your data, right? So mm-hmm. we're a very consumer-centric uh, platform. And what we're interested in doing is providing you with the tools, knowledge, and information to get the best possible rates. And in the other scenarios, there's maybe not that alignment between the organization that's providing the platform and you as the end consumer getting the best possible rate. I wonder too, from a consumer perspective, again, do we realize the number of options that are really out there? We maybe think of the major banks, maybe we know a broker personally, but do we really understand how much flexibility, how many options there are before us? No, that that's you, you've hit it right on the head there. Like so many people don't understand the number of lenders that are out there for a mortgage, for instance, right? You think of the bank, some people that deal with financial institutions such as a credit union will will go, okay, I can deal with my credit union and maybe a broker. Less than 30% of the Canadian population's even heard of a broker or even knows what they do. And in this particular scenario, we can go out to 70, 80 different lenders. Uh, so if somebody says no, your bank says no, there's going to be somebody else that's probably going to say yes. Less than 30% of the Canadian population has heard of a broker? Yeah, yeah, it's it's That's incredible. startling. It, That's, it is. Yeah, so why is that? I think there's a number of reasons. One is the the larger financial institutions have done an incredible job at, at marketing, right? And, and you think, I, I go to this bank, my parents have gone to this bank. That's where we do our banking. And they don't understand that there's monoline lenders out there. There's other people that are in this particular business. There's, you know, companies out of Vancouver that do this just full time lending, you know, mortgages Mm. and whatnot. So it's just, it's an awareness thing. And we're, what we're doing is we're trying to flip the entire process and say, there are tons of businesses out there that want your business and we're helping them gain access to you, but we're also shielding your data and we're not selling it. So you have that privacy and security that we're not going to share any information with them until you've actually decided to commit to a purchase. Mm, very important in this day and age where we're having lots of global conversations about <laughs> yes, privacy and data. Absolutely. Is the right way to think of this as you're essentially a digital broker that puts before the consumer all the options that are relevant and available to them and lets them decide no pressure? Pr- pretty much. It's it's very much uh, we're a technology platform where we can pull rates together, we can pull people together, and we can simplify busy lives, right? So we think of uh, the single mom or the single dad that only has so much time that they're allowed to take off from work to go and get a mortgage or get insurance or something like that. It's, it's a time-consuming process, especially if you want to get the best rate. And so we're simplifying that by allowing them to do it at any time. I wonder too, for those who are maybe 
securing insurance or a mortgage for the first time. It can be daunting. It's a lot of money on the line. And you maybe want to be able to speak to someone face-to-face or speak to someone who's an expert. How does your platform get around that and ensure that consumers are informed? Yeah. So what we do is we we do have partnerships uh, with uh, different organizations where if somebody really wants to you know, learn more, talk to somebody, we can facilitate that process, right? But again, the power is in your hands to make that call and that decision. So it's not somebody sitting behind a computer desk saying, this is the rate you got, Haley. Uh, and then you going, okay, I'll take it kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. You've got full control over which provider you want to deal with, who you want to talk with. And if you never want to talk to anyone, you just want to look at rates, great. It's useful, I imagine, too, because again, if you have that single point of reference and you're offered a rate, you don't necessarily know whether it's the best rate possible, whether it's a terrible rate, or again, what the options are. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, in again, in our platform, what we're having uh, individuals get the ability to do now is to see the entire universe that's available to them in just a, a very specific manner, in the sense that this is the rate that's available to them, not somebody else that has a different, you know, credit score, a different life situation, right? So they're all personally tailored to you. And you in your dashboard now have basically this vault of information, and you get to decide when, where, how, and who gets your business. What has the industry response been to your platform? I, I think right now we're, we're sort of at this tipping point in, in fintech, right? You know, it's been around for a number of years We've seen in other jurisdictions and other regions a real uptick in in the business. Here, we're still seeing some rigidity, right? But we're also seeing the banks and other institutions really look and go, okay, this is coming. How do we actually deal with it? And they're trying to do a better job, but they're also trying to protect their legacy market, right? And so this is going to disrupt them. And, and disrupt the buying process for financial services. We've seen too, of course, the larger, more traditional players adopt fintech to simplify their processes. I can imagine a bank, say, having a digital platform where you can get the the rates from that bank only and do that digitally. But again, you're having this scenario where they're competing against other lenders. So I, I'm a little curious about what they're going to think about that. But a lot of people are on the platform. Maybe they don't have a choice. Yeah, I, I think that's part of the the reason, right, is, is we're looking at not sort of this fixed sort of uh, marketplace. We're looking at a marketplace that that has growth and options. And, and that's what people want, right? They don't want to be tied in or locked into a particular product or institution. They want to know that they're getting the best that they deserve. You're looking now at mortgages and insurance, but down the line, are you exploring, say, solutions for businesses? Yeah, we we do have commercial finance uh, available. We're looking at loans. And one of the the ones that I think everyone can get super excited about is cell phone plans, Mm, right? mm -hmm. Uh, We we pay the (laughs) highest, uh, you know, across the world. Yeah. Uh, Everyone is, is always complaining. And there's definitely ways to get better rates. And we're, we're in the process of working, working on that. So we really want to democratize the, the cell phone industry. When it comes to options for businesses, are you targeting likely small businesses who can maybe benefit from saving a lot of time rather than large businesses? Or are you looking across the board? Yeah, we're, we're going to really focus on, on the smaller business segment. Obviously, that's where 
people have limited resources, limited bandwidth, and they can get the the most bang sort of for for their buck. They don't have procurement divisions and people to to go out and do RFPs and all those kinds of things. So the smaller businesses uh, are the ones that we're will primarily target. We're not going to say no to anybody, mm-hmm. but absolutely those are the ones that we're focused on. Great, Jay. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. That's Jay Dilley, founder and CEO at Rate Broker. And that's it for the show today. Thanks for listening to BIV Today. You can get notified of new episodes by subscribing to us on iTunes or Stitcher. You can also listen to our archive of shows over at BIV.com slash audio. And of course, if you want to listen to more business news, read it or watch it, head on over to BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Thanks again for listening.